open and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. Last week we began our study in the Upper Room Discourse. Five chapters all detailed from Thursday night of the Passion Week. John has been moving his gospel along. We've been studying from chapter 1 all the way through till chapter 12. And, and he was moving at a nice pace. And we were seeing a, a beautiful uh, view of Jesus' three and a half year ministry. And here John comes to a dead halt. Of his 21 chapters in the gospel of John, five of them are devoted to one conversation, to one night. Of all that John could have written... Roughly one-fourth of what he wrote is devoted to just one conversation. So we would do well to pay attention to this conversation. That's why we're going to move slowly through it. Um, Last week, we were able to look at the reality of the love of Jesus that he gave to his own disciples, that he loved them perfectly, even to the end, and he washed their feet. Love is the most common word in these five chapters, and last week we saw Humble love's example, Jesus taking the towel, girding himself, washing the disciples' feet, wiping their feet with the towel. We saw humble love's motivation last week that we are cleansed only by the work that Jesus has done in our lives. And even that cleansing, though once for all cleansing, it doesn't cure us of our sin. We don't uh, become sinless after Jesus justifies us. And so we still need to go back to him to confess and we need to go back to him to um, ask on a practical level. We are positionally perfect before the father. When we believe in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness is given to us and we are perfectly righteous before the father. He sees his son as he looks at us. But as we live out our everyday lives, that's why Peter says, oh, I, I don't I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, in essence, I've cleansed you thoroughly And you're perfect, so I don't need to give you a bath anymore, but you still sin on a daily basis. And that that level playing field for all of us, that Jesus has to do the cleansing, that none of us is good enough to cleanse ourselves or to get to God on our own, is our motivation to humbly love others. And then we saw humble love's blessing at the end of our time last week. That we are blessed only if we do these things. If you remember John chapter 13 Verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, John's going to move to Judas, but Judas doesn't contradict the point of that passage so far. The point of that passage is actually enforced by the story of Judas. Number one, we see that Jesus is an amazing example and model of how we're supposed to serve and love because he serves even his own enemy. Number two, we see very clearly, as Jesus had said, I'm sending you out. And in order to be sent out, you need to be humble and serve and love others. If you're going to be my ambassador, we see clearly that Judas doesn't fit into that model. And therefore, he isn't an ambassador of Jesus. But number three, and I think most important for our souls this morning. Is that Judas knew all of the right things. He knew all the right things, but he doesn't live out any of them. Just because he knew the truth doesn't mean that he's blessed, that he's living in a way that honors Jesus. We ended our time last week by, by looking at that verse in verse 17 and, and really diving deep into the reality that it's so much easier to serve or it's so much easier to be right in your truth and your understanding of knowledge than it is to serve. It's so much easier to read a good book on doctrine than to actually serve somebody and love them. We looked at the reality biblically that faith, if It is not accompanied by practice is useless. It's useless. It's not enough to know right doctrine if that doctrine doesn't move you to serve and to love. One commentator said, what use, what is the use of being sound on the atonement if the atonement doesn't make you sound? Your religion is worthless. It's useless if it doesn't produce something in your life. Judas is a a perfect example of that. He probably had a better theology than we do. He lived with Jesus for three and a half years, and yet he did not move that knowledge to truth lived out and applied. We talked last week about being truth appreciators. If I appreciate truth, I go, "Mm, that's good truth, but somehow I feel like um, I I must have applied it and I'm, I'm good to go. Truth appreciating is not truth applied. So we must be aware of the pitfalls of being right in doctrine and not right in living. And that's exactly what Judas is going to teach us this morning. 
Let's read these verses together. Let's read them carefully. Um, We're going to see Jesus' emotion on display, and I think we need to give that proper attention as we read these verses. John chapter 13, starting in verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. So he leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, It is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to him. Some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And it was night. Father, these are powerful words. And I, I pray that a better message would be heard than is preached. Um, these words are convicting, they're challenging, they are depressing at a certain level, and yet at the same time, Jesus spoke these words to give comfort and encouragement to his disciples. So I pray that you would bring that tension, that beautiful tension of the sorrow that's happening in this scene, and of the glory that is going to come from this sorrowful moment that Jesus knows full well. Show us Jesus, and in light of his beauty and his holiness, show us our own sinfulness. Give us eyes to see. Open the eyes of our heart to see the beauty of our Savior. God, I pray that you would make that happen because... We come with utter humility, and we're begging you to do that. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. We pray in your name. Amen. For our time this morning, we're going to see three different scenes in the most treacherous betrayal of all of human history. Three scenes. The first is the betrayal is going to be predicted. The betrayal is predicted. That's verses 18 through 22. Then the betrayer is identified, that's verses 23 through 26, and then the betraying actually begins in verses 27 through 30. But let's start in verse 18 with the first scene. The betrayal is predicted. Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. He said, you're all clean, you're all mine, I'm sending you all out as ambassadors. But then he says, I don't speak of all of you. There's one who's not going to be sent out as my ambassador. There's one who's definitely not clean. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Eats my bread. He's a friend. He's a companion. He's a, somebody who's been involved in fellowship. We hang out together. We know each other well enough to have a meal. And yet he's lifted up his heel. That's the idea of um, throwing you to the ground and lifting up your, your heel to step on your neck or step on your head and and bring you into submission and ultimately to kill you. It's generally agreed that Psalm 41, verse 9, where this passage is coming from, the whole context of Psalm 41 refers, it's a psalm of David, and it's referring to Ahithophel. And Ahithophel 
actually betrayed David. Ahithophel is the one that David is speaking of when he says, you ate my bread with me and yet you're lifting up your heel against me. Remember Absalom, David's son, tried to defy the king and and fight against him and, and bring about his own army to fight against David and to become king, to usurp the throne. Ahithophel was one of David's best friends and Ahithophel said, I'm going to go ahead and go with Absalom and fight against you. Ahithophel actually hung himself after he had betrayed his own master. Um, So very, very similar to exactly what's happening in this account with Judas. What Jesus is saying is, men, there is an Ahithophel here in our midst. Scripture is being fulfilled. Scripture has to be fulfilled. Verse 18, that the scripture may be fulfilled. There's multiple scriptures. Let me give them to you. If we had more time, we'd actually turn to these passages. But let me give them to you. You can turn to them. Uh, Sometime later today or during your devotions this week. So Psalm 41 verse 9 is the actual quote that Jesus is quoting from here. It's the actual place that he's quoting from. You can read that whole psalm to get the context. Uh, It's a very depressing psalm. It ends in a very depressing way because David is saying, why are you fighting against me, betraying me? There's two other passages. Psalm 55 Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14 and verse 20 through 21, very specifically detail that a friend is going to betray and hand over to the enemy to be killed somebody that they love. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14 and verse 20 through 21, a friend is going to betray me into the hands of the enemy. And lastly, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. I love when passages do that. 11, 12, 13, just put a colon and a little dash. 11, Chapter 11, verses 12 through 13, detailed the exact amount of money that would be handed over to Judas for his betrayal. It speaks of a betrayal happening, and it speaks of 30 pieces of silver being counted out and given to this person. It also brings in that idea of the potter's field that's going to be seen when Judas hangs himself, and um, the money is given back to the religious leaders. It's, it's money that's covered in in the blood of an innocent man. So they say, go buy something else with it. They buy the potter's field. And that's all included in Zechariah chapter 11. If we go later, even into the book of John, John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus himself says, I've kept all of them in my love, all of my disciples in my love. Not one of them has perished except for the son of perdition, the son of hell, the son of condemnation, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying is there's somebody in our midst who's going to betray me. And his betrayal of me is a fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, if you go to the beginning of verse 18, he says, I know the ones that I have chosen. I know the ones that I have chosen. Um, Later in chapter 15, twice he's going to say, I know I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose all of you for a purpose. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Judas isn't a surprise. I chose him for a specific reason. I chose him knowing this would happen. I know what's coming. I picked Judas for this very reason, to fulfill scripture. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I think it as well. That is, wait, hang on one second. If you're telling me that Jesus picked Judas to betray him, and you're telling me that it was prophesied in the Bible that Judas would betray Jesus, then is it really Judas's fault for betraying Jesus? Is it really his fault? Now, we've been over this type of tension, even in the Gospel of John, many, many times. It seems like every other passage deals with this tension. The scriptures all over the place wrestle with, wait, God chooses and you're totally responsible. How do they fit in together? First of all, I'd just like to direct you to a couple weeks ago when we said there's two categories that need to be thrown out, right? There's two categories of people that need to be thrown out. There's the one who says, I really hate God and I don't want to be on his side and I never want to follow him. And God says, no, 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 you have to be in there begrudgingly in heaven. I didn't choose this. I don't want to be here. That's not going to happen. And we have to be careful with that because every single time somebody's saved, that's what started that God says you're on my side but God woos and God changes their affection such that now they love him we love him because he first loved us when we understand his grace and his love lavished upon us it changes our affection such that anyone who is in heaven loves being there and wants to be with Jesus there's nobody in the world that says I don't want to be here they're in heaven saying I didn't want to be here but God picked me to be here I hate being here nobody's doing that 
But the second category really fits with Judas. Nobody is saying, I want to be in heaven, knocking on the door of heaven. Please let me in. I really, really want to love Jesus. I want to be here. And Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, you're not on the list. I didn't choose you. I'm really bummed. There's nobody that that's happening to. So Judas is not saying, I really wanted to fall. I wanted to be Peter. I wanted to be John. I wanted to be somebody who was going to be an apostle. I wanted to be one of the first pastors of the early church. No, Judas always is saying here, I don't want to be with Jesus. I don't love him. I don't want him. And remember the formula from a couple weeks ago. If you will not believe in Jesus, there will come a time, whether or not it's in this life or for sure the next life, that you cannot believe. If you choose not to believe in him now, there will come a time. This is what David says in Psalm 32. Seek him while he may be found. There's a time when you can't find him. We know for sure that's when you die. You cannot, if you die in unbelief, you cannot then, once you pass into the next life, go, you know what, I think I made the wrong choice. I should believe. It's appointed a man once to die, and then immediately comes judgment. And maybe, David seems to say it, and for sure the New Testament gives clear example that maybe there's a time in this life that if you harden your heart, God says, okay, fine. Romans chapter 1, you, I'll, I'll hand you over, I'll let you get what you want. You want none of me, fine, you can have none of me. That's where Judas is. So yes, God chose Judas to do this job, but no, Judas is not, not responsible. He's completely responsible. He has chosen his own path. We think of that in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, that very, very long chapter, we spent a long, a long time studying it, where Jesus says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you, but you must believe. And over and over and over, that tension. You must believe. You need to do the job of believing, and I must draw you to myself or else you cannot come. You cannot believe. And we get stuck in that. First of all, if you get stuck in that, don't worry, you're not alone. Remember, the massive crowd says, these are hard words. What is even happening? What are you saying? But instead of leaving like they did, instead of getting frustrated and leaving when we come across these difficult tensions in the Bible, let's stay like Peter did. Let's press in. You are the only one who has the words of eternal life. We're staying here. They might not make sense to our feeble brains, but we know you're God and they make sense. Let's stay. Let's press in. Let's ask, how does this cause us to worship? Whenever we see these different tensions, I immediately go to, okay, God's way bigger than I am. God's way bigger than I am. People say, it's impossible for God to choose Judas and and predestine that he would do this and prophesy that it would happen and still call him responsible. That's impossible. That doesn't make sense in my mind. And I go, yeah, exactly. It totally doesn't make sense in our minds. But God doesn't have our minds. It's not impossible for God to put those together perfectly. So we bow the knee. Do you believe that the Bible clearly teaches that God calls and elects those he will save? God chooses and ordains and purposes everything that's going to happen in this world. He's 100% sovereign. And no one can even come to him unless the Father draws him? Absolutely. The Bible's clear on that. There's, There's no way we can question that. Do you believe that God calls every single human being, anyone and everyone, to believe that they must believe it's a command to be followed in order to be saved? Absolutely. The Bible is abundantly clear. How do they fit together? I would just say, do they contradict? Not at all. They never contradict. They work perfectly together, so we bow the knee. This is exactly what's happening here with Judas. I think John MacArthur can help us here. He says, although Judas's betrayal fit perfectly into the eternal plan of God, God was not the efficient cause or the author of Judas's treachery. God did not make him evil or compel him to sin. Judas became a traitor to Christ by his own choice. God merely took Judas, wretched and treacherous as he was, and used his evil act for eternal good, end quote. What Jesus is saying here is no man, nothing that sinful man could ever do can thwart God's purposes. So he says, I I know the ones I've chosen. I know exactly what Judas is about to do. So why does he say this now in the upper room? Verse 19, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, I'm predicting what's going to happen so that, here's the motivation, when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Do you guys have he... In your Bibles, in italics, um, I, I believe that that he is just 
First of all, it's not there in the Greek. And second of all, I don't think it needs to be put in here. When, when you see a word in italics in your Bible, that means it's um, supplied by the translators to try and help give an understanding and to try and fill out the text a little bit and give us a better understanding of what's happening. You even see it in verse 19, at least in the New American Standard. From now on, I am telling you, before it comes to pass. So the translators say, well, we want, we want them to know what's happening, the object of what Jesus is talking about here. But I don't think that he is helpful because I think what Jesus is saying here is you may believe that I am. I am that I am. He's using the name of God to say, I want you to see only God could predict what's happening here. God chose it. God's predicting it. God's the one who's doing this. I am God. That totally fits in what John is trying to do when he's accomplishing this gospel. He's trying to accomplish that we would believe these things have been written so that you would believe that Jesus is the son of God. And by believing, have eternal life in his name. So what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to know this so that you won't stumble when it happens. I want you to know these events so that you won't stumble when they occur. I know that if I don't tell you this, you might be so rattled and undone by what's about to happen that you might completely lose all faith. And so I want you to believe. I don't want you to struggle with your faith it's important for jesus to tell his disciples that he knows every single detail of what's about to happen nothing is outside of his control jesus is not a victim of this hidden hypocrite he's fully aware and he's laying his life down by the way just side note how gracious of jesus to see that this betrayal that's about to happen could so rattle the disciples that they would just walk away And so he says again, he's living out what he just told them to live out at the beginning of chapter 13. Love one another, serve one another. He's serving them here. He's caring for their souls. And by the way, he does the exact same thing to you and to me. He knows that the trials and the tribulations that we're going to go through could rattle our souls. And so he promises in this life, you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. Don't be surprised by it. That's what Peter says. Don't be surprised when fire ordeals overtake you. Don't be shocked. You've been promised that that's going to happen. Don't let them rock your boat so much that you topple over because you don't have the ballast in your boat of the knowledge that God has predicted this is going to happen. And that's why Jesus says, tribulation is going to come, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm with you. That's exactly what he's saying here to his disciples in the upper room. So if you feel like God is walking you through trials without mercy, look to this passage. Jesus is working through the trial for your faith. He's caring for your soul. He will not let your faith be so rattled that you just abandon all hope. Cling to him the way that he's asking his disciples to cling to him here. Verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, receives whomever I send, receives me, and he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Now, at first reading, that just seems so out of place. Guys, there's going to be a betrayer. He's going to betray me. I'm telling you these things so that you can believe when it actually happens. And, oh, by the way, whoever sends, I send out, they receive me, they receive. Seems out of place. But I think it fits perfectly with what's happening. As Jesus says, there's a betrayer who's going to betray me. And he's going to specify he's in our midst. If you're a disciple, you might think, you know what, if somebody's going to betray you and he's in our midst, Uh, then our whole plan has failed. Uh, Obviously, the mission that you have sent us to do has failed. And Jesus is saying, no, the commission stands. It's not nullified because of Judas's actions. It stands. I'm still sending you out. And and though Judas is going to betray me, you still are my ambassadors. And whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. No matter what happens, it's not lowering your commission and it doesn't alter your calling. You're still my sent one, my ambassador, and my representative. I think this is so crucial for our day and age. This verse is so applicable to us. Have you heard people say that the existence of hypocrites in the church is their excuse for not going to church and not following Jesus? You've heard that, right? Well, I don't want to go to the church. It's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Jesus is saying there's a hypocrite in our midst, and your commission still stands. You can still do your job perfectly well, Because I have sent you, and the person who's going to betray me, he doesn't affect our plan for the worse. He makes our plan happen. So your plan still totally 
fits. Your commission is still totally in effect. Jesus says hypocrites are going to come, and it doesn't change the fact that you have been given an assignment by God. It doesn't change that truth. So this verse is so helpful for us today. Once he says that verse, verse 21, he becomes troubled. He becomes troubled. We've seen this word before. We saw it in John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus was at Lazarus's grave. We saw this in John chapter 12, verse 27, when Jesus thought about his death. Apparently, his demeanor and his voice give him away such that John can write this. Right after he said that, he became, something happened. Something happened. What does troubled mean? Troubled in John chapter 5 is, is used to speak of the stirring up of the waters in the pools of Bethesda, agitated, stirred up, shaken. It's used in other places to speak of a, a horse snorting or a lion roaring. Sometimes it's translated as shudder or to be deeply shaken and moved. Why is Jesus troubled? Well, John tells us he's troubled in spirit and testifies saying, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Up until this point, Jesus has simply said there is a betrayer that will do a work of betraying me. And here he specifies it very specifically, one of you. The betrayer is here in our midst. Now, if you understood the psalm prophecy in Psalm 41.9, you probably would have been able to figure that out. The disciples were not thinking of that. So Jesus specifies it. In this moment, one of you here will betray me. I think that's exactly why Jesus is troubled. Why was Jesus troubled with Lazarus? There's a number of reasons why Jesus was troubled, but I think the core reason is the loss of a relationship of somebody he loved. He was troubled because of the unbelief. Yes, he was troubled because of death. Yes, he was troubled because of sin. Yes, but he was troubled because of the separation that had just occurred. I think that when you see John chapter 12, Jesus being troubled when he says, my soul is troubled to the point of death because of what he's staring at. He's about to suffer the wrath of God on behalf of our sins. What is he most troubled at? Is he troubled by the beatings and the whippings and the nails? No, he's troubled by the separation that he's going to experience on the cross when God places all of our sins upon Jesus' shoulders and crushes Jesus under that weight and turns his back on him. So here... I think that Jesus is troubled because of the loss of a relationship. He loved Judas. Chapter 13, he loved his own, even to the end. He loved them. He loves Judas, and he's troubled by his unbelief. He's troubled by the fact that he's actually going to go through with this. He's troubled by the loss of the relationship with the one that he loves. And that's why he starts by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. This is, I'm testifying truly. He has to say those two words, truly, truly. He has to say that because the disciples would not believe what he's about to say. What I'm about to tell you is so unbelievable. I'm going to tell you that I'm swearing that this is true. One of you. I think the emphasis is on that word you. One of you. It's not just somebody out there. It's one of you will betray me. He will betray me. The disciples are at a loss, verse 22. Began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Looking around. Matthew tells us that in the upper room they start looking around going, is it I? Is it it, it I? Is it I? And Judas even says, is it I? He knew. Nobody else knew. So there's a betrayal that is predicted. Jesus predicts that the betrayal is going to happen. And then, number two, in verse 23 through 26, he's actually going to identify that betrayer. Now, Judas and John are lying down. Remember, they would lie down to eat their food. Judas and John are lying down on Jesus' right and left. They're in very prominent positions. Not even Peter is close enough. We get that from verse uh, 23. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples. So, lying down on his chest, very close to him. They would be lying down um, on their left arm. So uh, John is probably to the right of Jesus, lying down into Jesus' chest, able to 
um, get close enough to him. I love John's um, uh, speaking about himself. He says, this is uh, the identification that I want you to know me by is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's not a prideful statement. That's actually a very humble statement. How could Jesus even love me? But he does. That's amazing. And I want you to know his love is amazing. And so he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's actually very interesting because once he calls him, this is the first time that we've seen this. And once he calls himself this, he kind of goes, man, that's a really good title. And he doesn't stop. He calls himself this four more times in chapter 19, 20, and 21. And he's going to give us the details of an eyewitness account. These are very detailed accounts to help us understand that John was actually there. So there is somebody lying down on Jesus's chest here. It's John in the end of verse 23. So Peter, Simon Peter, gestures to him and says to him, tell us who it is of whom Jesus is speaking. So he just said, one of you will betray me. And Peter is not to the right or left of Jesus. Peter is somewhere down the line. And Peter says, John, John, tell, tell us, get him, ask him. And so what does John do? Verse 23, or 25, leaning back thus on Jesus' chest. So lying on his left side, just kind of leaning over and says, Jesus, who is it? Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Everybody wants to know who it is. Who is it? Who is it? This is one of the ways that we know that we're made in the image of God. We, we love justice. We love justice. We need to know who is responsible for wrongdoing. Who did it? God loves justice. So Peter says, John, please find out. And John asked Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to dip a morsel, this unleavened bread, I'm going to dip this into the sop. Maybe some of your translations say sop into the bowl I'm going to dip it into the the bitter herbs. You remember when we took our our Passover Seder together, there was a little bowl of bitter herbs. The bitter herbs is a little dish that was filled with these bitter herbs, vinegar, salt, mashed fruit, dates, figs, raisins, and some water all mixed together. And you would take this little cracker and you'd dip it in. and, And it's very, very interesting because the person leading the Seder, who is Jesus, the person who would lead the Seder would give that morsel to the most honored guest first. And so Jesus says, oh, I'll tell you exactly who it is, John. And he dips the morsel into the sop and he brings it up and he gives it to Judas. He gives it to Judas. You, Judas, are our most honored guest here in our midst. He probably said this quietly. Maybe not. Maybe he didn't. Probably he did because we don't see anybody rising up and attacking Judas. I want you to notice just two things here very clearly. Number one, see the amazing love of Jesus. Jesus had given Judas a seat of honor. Just to be close, on your right and on your left. Remember they were arguing about that? Who's going to be close to you? Jesus gave him the seat of honor. And then he also gives him the morsel, which is the most honoring thing you could do to say here. He had also washed his feet, and now he says, you are our honored guest. Think of the love of Jesus throughout the whole ministry. Notice when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, nobody says, hmm, if I had to take a guess here, I'd say it's Judas. Nobody says that. Nobody says, you know what? The master treats everybody the same, but then when he speaks to Judas, there's like just a little mm behind what he's saying. Just, I'm not happy with that guy. No, Jesus treated Judas the exact same, absolutely loving him the exact same, such that when we get to the upper room, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Nobody goes, Judas. Nobody. Jesus was reaching out in love the entire time, washing his feet, giving him the seat of honor the entire time of their ministry. But he, Judas would not come. This is what Jesus weeps over um, when he looks at Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together under my wings like a A mother hen would gather her little baby chicks, but you were not willing. Oh, he loved Judas, but Judas was unwilling to come to him. Judas was unwilling. This is another tension. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, and yet he's reaching out in love, pleading with him to repent, to be restored, and those two don't contradict. 
He knows that those pleadings, that the cries that Jesus is making, Judas, please repent. He knows they're going to fall on deaf ears, and yet he keeps doing them. He knows what Judas is about to do, and yet he keeps pleading with him. In fact, even right after Judas kisses Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus calls him a friend. Jesus says, you're my friend. Friend. Why do you do it that way? Friend. Notice the amazing love of Jesus. And then secondly, notice the amazing hypocrisy of Judas. Nobody would have suspected him. A perfect actor. His name, Judas, comes from Judah, which is the promised line of the Messiah and the 12 sons of Jacob. Iscariot just means from the city of Kerioth, which was not in Galilee. It's a much better address than Galilee. He's the only one of the 12 that's not from Galilee. My Bible professor used to say, if you had lined up all of the disciples and all of the moms in Israel could have taken their daughter and looked at down the row of 12 men that were following Jesus, they all would have picked Judas. Oh, I want, I want my daughter to marry Judas, please. Depictions of him in art and media just show him as this satanic-looking figure. Like, you, you would look at them and you'd, you'd say the exact opposite. Well, Peter's kind of weird and, and he's always messing up. And John seems really, really sweet. But that guy, I would never want to be his friend. I would never want my daughter marrying him. He just looks like he wants to kill people. Like, this is not a nice guy. But notice the amazing hypocrisy of Judas. Kent Hughes says it this way. He had class compared to the rest. Today, Judas would wear a Brooks Brothers suit and a Madison Avenue smile. He would know all the right hymns, when to sit down, when to stand up, when to inject the most persuasive cliché, how to integrate himself inside of the powerful leaders of the church. No one would suspect him of being a traitor. And they didn't then either. There's a hypocrite among the twelve. Matthew 13 tells us wheat and tares grow together, right? Wheat and tares grow together. The good crops and the bad crops grow together. And what's the whole point of that parable? You remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Is you will not know until judgment day. You won't even know who the tares are and who the wheat are. Wherever God's work is done, there are imposters like Judas. There's always going to be hypocrites in the church. This is one of the favorite tricks of Satan. He employs this to disguise themselves, using the words of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15, to disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. There's an amazing lesson for us here. There's always going to be hypocrites in the church, and usually, not always, but usually they are very hard to identify. Usually. And so here Judas is identified. But he's identified in such a way that probably only John knows. Maybe John tells Peter. We don't have that interaction. And if John told Peter, that further lends itself to Peter going, eh, I think you heard wrong. Like, just an unbelief. No way that that's Judas. If the disciples had fully known that it was Judas, I think that they would have rushed him and either beaten him up or killed him and made sure that they stopped the betrayal from happening. But nothing can stop it. So, number three, the betraying actually begins. Verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into Judas. This is the betraying beginning. This is the beginning of the betrayal. Satan enters him. Again, this does not stop Judas from being responsible. He has opened himself up to Satan using him. Only Jesus knows this, by the way. I think this is so crucial. Again, you ever hear people say the Bible's not relevant? You ever hear that? The Bible's not relevant. This text is totally relevant to today. You have a lot of people in the world that are terrified of demonic activity and terrified of, of all of the, the craziest external manifestations of demonic possession. You have movies all over the place that describe this. And just if somebody's demon-possessed, you can tell and they're going to speak in a deep voice and things are going to be terrifying and scary. When Satan indwells Judas here, nobody goes, it's Judas, something just happened. Nobody does that. Nobody even knows that Satan has indwelt Judas except for Jesus. So we shouldn't be looking for the signs of 
the crazy manifestations. I think that Satan loves, Satan loves all those Hollywood movies that depict the crazy manifestations of demonic possession because then he can go around possessing all sorts of people and nobody would even suspect it. They're looking for all of the crazy external manifestations. But here's a question that I wrestle with. Why would the devil indwell Satan or indwell Judas such that he could betray Jesus to get him killed if Satan knew that killing Jesus would provide salvation for a sheep? You have that question before? Why would Satan want to kill Jesus? There are a number of answers. As I was studying through this, I came up with at least 14 answers to that question. But I think the, the answer for us this morning is this. Satan knew that if he could kill Jesus and keep him dead, salvation would be impossible. Jesus' death alone does not provide salvation. What needed to happen? He needed to be raised from the dead. First Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is useless. You're dead in your sins. So maybe, just maybe, Satan is thinking, I can kill him so well that there's no way he could ever be raised. Whether he didn't count on Jesus rising from the dead or whether he knew that that was going to happen, but he was going to try and stop that from happening. Either way, he indwells Satan or indwells Judas to say, I want Jesus dead and I want him to stay dead. Because a dead Savior is impossible for salvation. That does not work. He needs to be raised from the dead. So, Satan indwells Judas. And, verse 27, Therefore, because Satan had entered into Judas, therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. What you do, I I want you out of here. Therefore, because Satan was now in the room, in their midst, Jesus is about to establish the new covenant community, and he says, you're not a part of it, get out. And I love this. Satan is indwelling Judas, and Judas has to obey Jesus. Satan cannot say, no, I'm staying here. Judas instantly goes, okay, and backs away and leaves. Satan has to obey Jesus. He is unable to do anything on his own apart from the knowledge of Jesus and apart from the allowance of Jesus. But again, John gives us a terrifying picture of what hypocrisy looks like. Verse 28 and 29. No one even knew, nobody reclining at the table even knew for what purpose he had said this to him. So they hear Jesus say, what you have to do, do quickly. Nobody goes, oh, betraying, betraying, he's doing betraying. Nobody does that. In fact, verse 29, they were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus is saying, buy things that we need for the feast or give something to the poor. We need to read these verses and be appalled by the amazing dexterity of hypocrisy. This is unreal that he could live this hypocrisy so well that when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me and Judas says, hey, can I leave? Nobody says, uh, maybe hey, you should stay here. Don't let anybody leave. Nobody says that. Why would Judas do this? Why would Judas do this? Eleven times in the Gospels, Judas is called the one who betrayed the Lord. Why is he doing this? Let me give you just three reasons really quickly. We know, number one, he loved money. He loved money. Remember chapter 12, John chapter 12, uh, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. And Judas gets super angry. That money could have been sold, uh, the, the perfume could have been sold, and the money given to the poor. What he's saying is that perfume could have been sold. The money given to me, I would give some of it to the poor, but I'd keep some of it because he owns the money box. And yet he's going to sell Jesus off to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave. That's just a lowly, common price. He's not going to get riches, he's not going to get a fortune. He loved money. Number two, he was selfish. He stands in stark contrast to what Jesus had just commanded his disciples, serve others. Judas did not know what that meant. He served himself. He used everyone to serve his own purposes. He was just out for himself. And he wanted wanted to get what he could get out of Jesus. Maybe he wanted to be the hero in the eyes of the religious leaders. 
Whatever it is, he was selfish. And he also opened up himself to satanic influence. Why did he do this? Well, because he had not believed all along. And if you choose to not believe now, there might come a time when you cannot believe. So, verse 30. After receiving the morsel, he went out, and immediately it was night. He got up, he obeyed Jesus, and immediately it was night. This is the midnight of Judas's entire life. Yes, John's just giving us a time marker here, but I think more than that. We've seen several times work the work of uh, the one who sent you while it is still day. Night is coming when you can no longer do the work. I think we have enough reason to say that there's more than just a time marker here. Never again would Judas ever wake up to the sunshine of Christ's countenance. This is the night that would know no morning. What did Judas do when he left the upper room? As he got up from the table and walked out the door and shut the door behind him. Did he look back one last time? Did, did he wonder, stop and, and maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't do this? What was he thinking? I'm sure that he didn't realize how badly sin separates. Never again would he have sweet fellowship with his disciples. Never again would he see the tender face of Jesus. The next time that Judas will see the face of Jesus is in terrifying judgment over his soul. And that's the end. The betrayal has been predicted. The betrayer has been identified. And now the betrayal has been set in motion. So what are we supposed to learn from these verses? Just two things in way of conclusion. Number one, look at Jesus' love. Jesus' love. There's multiple ways we've already looked at Jesus' love, but I just want to end by going back to verse 21. Jesus became troubled so that you and I would never have to be troubled. In fact, chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So there's a way in which we can sinfully be troubled in our spirit, and there's a way in which we can righteously be troubled in our spirit. And Jesus says, uh, the way that we are unrighteous and unholy in our troubled spirit is when we lack belief, when we stop believing. Believe in God. Don't be troubled. But the holy troubled soul is owing itself to love. Jesus loved us and his own disciples so much that he would be willing to be troubled in his soul such that you and I would never have to be troubled for any second of our entire lives. Notice Jesus' love. And finally, notice Judas' life. Jesus' love and Judas' life. How could someone who lived with Jesus for three and a half years turn out like this? Judas is a lasting example for those who have been around the things of God, but in the end have turned out to have hearts that only wanted to be around the church for what they could get out of it. Judas tells us a very scary truth. You can be extremely close to Jesus and be unsaved and be a very convincing hypocrite. You can be very near to Jesus and be eternally lost. Judas fooled all the disciples just as there are terrors in the church today. So we have to ask the question, is it us? Now, where would you go to answer that question? Am I a hypocrite? Am I like Judas? In our legalistic mindset, I think we'd go to, okay, Judas loved money. Am I selfish and greedy and love money? I think all of us would go to some extent, yes. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. I think we'd then go to, okay, am I selfish? Judas was selfish. He was just out for what he could get. Am I selfish? Oh, yes. I'm in trouble for that one, too. Have there been moments in my life when I've chosen not to believe and not to follow and not to obey? Yes. This is getting really bad. We're all looking around going, I fulfill everything that it means to be Judas. I'm in trouble. I would say to our own hearts, that's not the ultimate question to ask. Those are externals, and they're important externals. Some of them even go internally to our desires. But the deepest question, Jesus forgives all those things. You can come to Jesus and be forgiven in this moment for your greed, for your selfishness. The question is, do you love Jesus? The truest test of whether or not you're a hypocrite is, do you love Jesus? I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, Judas 
hated Jesus. He hated him. He was so angry when Jesus was allowing Mary to anoint his feet. He was so angry. He yells out at Jesus. And when Jesus rebukes him, which I'm sure had happened several times in his ministry, Judas says, that's it. I'm done. I hate this man. He knew all the truths. He knew all the right things. And he looked good. But deep down inside, he did not love Jesus. That's what Matthew 7 tells us. You remember Matthew 7? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at everything we've done in your name. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. We did all we preached. We did all these different things. Look, I'm saved because of what I've done. And what is Jesus going to say? Depart from me. I never what? I never knew you. Go all the way back to Genesis um, chapter 4 where Adam knew Eve. It's an intimate knowledge. I never knew you. We were never intimately acquainted. You never loved me. Sure, you have all these different works that you can do, but you never loved me. So my question to us this morning is, do you love Jesus? If you do, you have the promise that you love him only because he first loved you. Yes, we are one of his disciples. We love him. Is that love perfect? No. But if you even have a spark of that love for him, we're we're in in a good place where we can grow that love. Do you love him? And can I plead with you? Don't leave this gym if you have doubts of your love for Jesus. Don't leave. Lunch can wait. Don't ever make eternity wait. Do you love Jesus? That's the question we all need to ask our souls right now. God, I thank you so much for your amazing love for us. We want to do the work of introspection introspection we want to do the work of examining our hearts but then we want to look upward we want to stare at the one who made an end to all of our sin god we are all terribly imperfect in our love there is never a moment when we love you the way that you ought to be loved and yet you have graciously granted us a love for you that transcends our own failures, our own mistakes. It's a love that has been given to us. It's the perfect love that Jesus had for the Father and that has been given to us. It's our record of perfect love. So we rely on that and we thank you for that. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We could never love you enough in order to be saved. That's why you loved us and saved us and gave us perfect love. And so we come and we bow down before we confess our failings And as we confess our own sin, we are so thankful that we can plead the blood of Jesus, the mercy that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. And we love you for that grace. We don't love you to get you. We love you because we already have you. And we're so blown away by your amazing love for us. Oh God, we need you every hour. Instruct us now, even as we sing to rely fully on your love and not on our own works, our own righteousness.